Hello again. Welcome back. This is Country Roads Confidential at Earsports.com. Been a long time since we did one of these. I, I think I got the beginning right. 21 uh, days games to get a little rusty. It has been a while. I think, well, I can't remember the last time. I guess it's been that long since we've done a football one. We've done a little bit of basketball since then, but um, got to get my voice ready. Got to get uh, my, my, my stats ready. I, we got to see what... Uh, See if we still got it. Last time we talked was after the Western Kentucky game. Mm-hmm. Lots happened since then. I would say I had, so, yeah. I had great stuff ready for the Oklahoma pregame podcast. I bet you did. Lots of puns, I'm sure. Many, many. Uh, and then it was gone sooner than you could have predicted. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, God. There we go. Getting loose. Just just popping that catcher's mitt in the bullpen right now. Yeah. Do you worry or wonder at all about a team that played five games, five Saturdays, seeing to get into, we've written about this, talked about this, they got into their game, and they, they flexed that ability. Like, hey, we can play our style. We're going to get to it, and you're going to have to adjust. They did that pretty consistently in the final three games, that five-game stretch. Week off, fine, great. Two weeks off, and it's really three because you have this whole week too, but a lot of time without reps. And again, I think it's important because the beginning of the season was very like sputtery, you know, game off, game, game off. And then bang, 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 five games in a row. And all of a sudden, here you are again, where you're just sitting around getting barnacles for a couple of weeks. And by the way, the two best teams in your schedule, how much of a concern is that for you competitively? Um, it's it's I, I, I'm with uh, completely in agreement with Neil Brown. I think the one week was perfect because I think that was enough time to get guys rested up, get them, you know, refocused back on this, this stretch finish here. But once you got that second week, it's, it's just, it's hard. You get geared up for that game. Cause they, they got through, you, you mentioned before that Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday is when you really focus on the, the upcoming opponent. That's really when you hit the practice field hard Tuesday, would you say Tuesday or Wednesday is the biggest practice or hardest, longest practice? Wednesday probably, and then Thursday you walk through. Friday you just travel and right. Sweats. And so they went through Tuesday and Wednesday's practice without. I, I, maybe they finished Wednesday's practice, or they found out like right before, right after Wednesday's practice that the game was was going to be postponed. So you've geared up. You've done the hardest part of the week preparing for that game, and then it's over, and that's it. And then you gotta kind of just get through the weekend and start back up again to do it again. And and that could be difficult on some guys and that, that to kind of keep that motivation going into another week after you kind of sputtered and lost that game and, and you got to refocus after refocusing like one week earlier. Such a strange swing last week because you're staring at a home game at night against Oklahoma. They haven't had a treat like that in two years. And really anybody mm-hmm. who's on this team is young enough or in such a role that they just they weren't a part of the 2018 home game against Oklahoma at night. That was their last night game. It's Wednesday. You're right. They're about to go out and practice and then put this to bed. Next day is Thanksgiving. That's a bummer sometimes because you still got a young team that isn't home. And Brown even mentioned that, too, that you kind of wonder sometimes around the holidays because these guys haven't had a chance to go home. Even during those off weeks during the season, guys go home sometimes. It hasn't happened this year for obvious reasons. So you pull the rug out from under him. You bring them all back. Thanksgiving a day later then by the way Friday morning we're going outside Saturday morning we're going outside and practicing for another team that's pretty good and then you find out you're going to play Oklahoma at home at like noon or 3 30 I don't know I just don't think I don't think that 
Iowa State's as exciting to an opponent as maybe Oklahoma is, but better be because <laughs> that's a pretty good team. But I, I think you just wonder about, man, yeah, you pulled the cord once and you had to put it on the shelf. Now you got to pull it again. And by the way, you're going on the road. Um, good team. Defense, not fun to play. Motivation, inspiration. We'll see. This is going to be a challenge for coaches and older players and, you know, even players among themselves, see how, how good they can be and how good they can go. Um, sounds like they're going to be a little bit shorthanded. Um, here's what we'll do. We can tell you that Wednesday's tests came back with some concerning news and not bad. There were a couple of positives and more people sidelined by contact tracing than positives, which is probably not surprising because every person who tests positive comes in contact with so many other people who may not test positive, but you have to wonder about. So certainly more people contact tracing than positives who are sidelined. I've heard like between seven and 10, but hardly any of them are people who would be on the two deep or travel. Um, what was confirmed to me was that it's three people who would ordinarily play or travel. Remember you have 70 players who can travel to a, um, a road game. So that's kind of the number we're working at here. So players who travel three, two on offense, one on defense, you'll know pretty quickly. Most of the, uh, probably two of the three for sure. Um, that's about all we can say. <laughs> we have a, a policy company. Those are the rules. We're not going to break them. Uh, truth be told, it's not that big of a deal. It's it, it's a big deal, but it's not so strange in 2020 that you make a big deal of it. To me, the bigger deal, Chris, was you get the news on Wednesday, and you and I check these things, and you're pretty good about it on Friday, especially, hey, the team left, the opponent left, game on. Well, that's especially noteworthy the week after you had a game postponed. So Wednesday you hear positive test contact chasing you uh oh you make one or two phone calls and you find out hey it's not a hot spot it's not an outbreak don't use words like outbreak or rash of positives small number isolated number was the word that was stressed to me and that's the word we used and you kind of have to roll with this it's nothing you can really do and, and i don't think it'll be too disruptive the fact that they're gonna you know find out on wednesday doesn't necessarily help you you don't get to practice a whole lot but i imagine they went into wednesday's practice with a pretty good Plan of succession. Um, second time all year, though, this is actually bitten West Virginia, but second week in a row that they're, they've been somewhat affected or compromised by this. Yeah, I think um, without, again, without going into too much detail on everything, it's it's tough. i a little bit surprised with the second off week, and maybe that's another downside of having that second off week. You know, that's extra time that, they might not be practicing or focusing on the game or being around the team or being, I don't want to say confined, but kind of restricted and following proto protocols more closely. But it's only a couple, and I think it's a testament to the protocols that are in place that it was a couple and that there weren't more. You, you mentioned 7 to 10 total people as far as contact tracing and everything as well. Um, that, that's that's total. That's not 7 to 10 positive tests. That's 7 to 10 after mm -hmm. contact tracing. I think that's a testament to the protocols that, that Neil Brown and West Virginia have put into place for practice because these guys are practicing. They were practicing. They were with the team, but they do such a good job of making sure guys are masked up, that they're away from each other. And remember, they, they test this and they check this with those things. Um, I call them the sports bras that they wear that test their GPS and their speed and how hard they're running, how fast they're running, all that stuff. It also helps them track 
how close they are to each other, how long they've been close to each other, and they can use that information to determine, hey, this guy was within so-and-so for 15 straight minutes. He's got to be contact traced and quarantined as well. And But they've done such a good job of separating these guys during practice, keeping them away from each other, keeping social distancing, keeping masks on, all that stuff that it may not it, – the, the, the contact tracing was – relatively minimal from what we've seen for other programs where a couple guys have tested positive and then you wipe out, uh, you know, a whole position group or 20 kids and stuff like that. And that just didn't happen, which is, which is good. My understanding is that for, for what's tangible here, and these are the three players who won't play that you would notice or or recognize in the depth chart. um, They live together. Yeah. Like, what can kind you of do? Hard, kind of hard to keep away from each other when you live together. Yeah. So, I mean, not even a practice thing. So, you, you say, oh, man, these guys are practicing. You know, they, they play a position. They're in the same meeting room. This is bad. Not even what happened here, too. So, um, here's something I discovered after our reporting last night when some people did go back to me when I asked some initial questions. And, of course, people are kind of under a rock. They don't want to say anything until someone else says something. But um, they had problems last week for the Oklahoma game. And, Problems may not be the right word, but they had people who were going to miss, who weren't going to play. Um, and they're going to play this week, too. So that's one good news because you're not going to be playing Oklahoma shorthanded. Not great news to play Iowa State shorthanded. I get that, too. But you get the guys back. More importantly, if you have players who are going to miss the Oklahoma game but can play against Iowa State, there is hope that one, two, or three of these people who don't play tomorrow can be back for Oklahoma, too. I can never tell how these things work. One time it's 14 days, one time it's 10, now it's 7 for contact tracing. Um, the rules have been kind of fluid, so to speak. Again, silver linings we're looking for here. I don't think this is a terrible deal. Yeah, it's a bummer. These guys aren't going to play their replaceable parts, too. So, silver lining would be that it would seem they could be back for the next game. Is that how you would read this? I guess so. Uh, you know, I can't tell because Gamitter missed two games, right? But maybe right. that was just because of conditioning. And that was, and maybe that was also because he, well, did he miss it? Wait, he missed two games. He missed the game because he tested positive on a Friday. Missed that game that day. And then it was a bye week, right? Before came back Kansas. after that. And was he available? Or no, he wasn't available for Kansas. Just didn't play. Right, just didn't play. So I think maybe his might have been also just because it was Friday. Like maybe if he had tested Wednesday, he might have been able to at least participate. Um, but yeah, obviously conditioning is a part of this. If you're not doing anything for two weeks in the middle of the season and then asking you to, if you're not doing anything for two weeks with an, a cardio uh, type illness, if, if you're feeling symptoms, then yeah, that can be uh, tough to come back from quickly. So, but I don't know. You know, like you said, the, C- the CDC changed the rules, and now it's ten days. I don't know if the Big Twelve then changed their rules because wasn't it the Big Twelve guidelines that was fourteen, or did they also have ten? And they've been following the the government too, typically. Okay, so so on I, Wednesday though, if you can't practice when you're sidelined, even if it's a week, and you show up to practice next Wednesday, are you going to go on Saturday? Maybe not. So I don't know. It's just another monkey wrench here. It's it's unfortunate, but oh well. So we'll pay attention today. We'll make some calls and they do the, the Friday antigen tests. They're supposed to be administered shortly after we post this podcast. Um, we typically can get some feedback or feelers. I have appointments to talk to people today just to, to, to put a pin in this and make sure we know what's going on. And more importantly, are they going to play a game? Are they going to travel? If that plane takes off from Clarksburg, hey, we're good to go. Provided things are okay at Iowa State, but I don't think Iowa State's going to let West Virginia fly if things aren't bad. So Again, wheels up would be would be good news. And then we get to look forward to, all right, how are we doing this? Are they the ninth-ranked Cyclones because they're in the CFP? 
Yeah. 12th ranked Cyclones because we're in the media and we should use the media poll. I, I, I was wondering this. I thought, you know, the general consensus was that we switched to the playoff rankings once the playoff rankings started coming out. And then, but all, I thought that's been the case for the last, you know, ever since the playoff rankings started. But all I've seen this year so far, like, or at least this week, as far as Iowa State is concerned, is that Iowa State is number 12, number 12, Iowa State. I, mm-hmm. Hey, man, uh, number nine for me, number nine for me. I'm willing okay. to switch over to the playoff rankings. How about this? Big 12 leader. Yeah. Um, likely going to play in the Big 12 championship game. They have four or five scenarios where the easiest one is they win, but they can get some help and go into. Um, best team in school history? Yeah. According to their, um, you know, their 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 game notes, the Iowa State game notes, best yeah. team in school history. So that's fun. Mm-hmm. On December fifth, um, a challenge here, Chris. What are they looking at? Because we understand their thumbprint is on defense, but boy, their offense is a lot better than I gave it credit for in the beginning of the season. Yeah, I think uh, you look at it. Obviously, they got kind of a weapon really at each position you got that trio of uh, you got a good quarterback you got a good running back you got a good receiver in this instance the, the receivers are more tight ends than anything but Brees Hall is the guy that makes it that, that makes it go and I think they've kind of realized that as the year has gone on and have relied on him more because uh, the, the season started out I don't want to say bad I mean, uh, he's very Iowa Statey is the word yeah yeah and uh it, it it was almost like why will they not just give him the ball? You know they lost the, the game at Louis versus Louisiana, then they lost or they won at TCU, but just barely by three points. And at that time, he was averaging like seven yards per carry and had four touchdowns, but was only getting like eighteen touches a game. And then finally, they just said, you know what, screw it, this is our horse, let's ride him. Uh, twenty eight touches or or excuse me, twenty nine touches when you count a, a reception. Um, against Oklahoma in that win, couple touchdowns, 27 against Texas Tech, 20, 21, 31, and so on and so forth. So, you know, I, I think they realize that that he is their horse and they're going to try to ride him instead of, you, you know, Purdy's good and we can talk about him more as this podcast goes on and I'm sure we will, but he may not be the Big 12 Offensive Player of the Year as some very handsome voter once suggested in the preseason. So... <laughs> I, I I just think Brees Hall is the guy that is carrying that offense right now. But for them to be successful, they got to get Purdy going. Um, I touched on that in my Tuesday morning quarterback piece. In wins and losses, the running the running offense, the rushing offense for Iowa State is pretty identical. It's not it's really not that different. But the wins and losses, uh, the split. When they win the game, they're averaging about 260 some yards per, yeah, 266 yards per game passing when they win, and only 153 when they lose. So when they struggle, when they lose games, it's because Brock Purdy cannot get the the passing game going. Mm-hmm. They um, they've compensated and consolidated on offense. They've had some some. Things that have happened, like Trevor Downing, for example, preseason all-conference quality lineman. He's missed the last five games. They're starting a redshirt freshman right tackle the last five games. That's probably not ideal, but that's happened midstream, and they've they've rolled with it. 
Tariq Milton is a very good player, dangerous. He's played in three games. And yet the offense is, when you look at point yards per play in Big 12 games, better than anybody else in the conference. That was just shocking to me. I couldn't believe that. I knew they had an above-average offense, a really good quarterback. I think that they get slept on when it comes to productivity and explosiveness even because handed off, um, tight end, tight end, tight end, Iowa State. But they're really good at what they do. They may not snap it a ton, but they get a lot of movement every time they snap it too. And again, working through things like losing the guy like Milton who they can do some fun stuff with on offense, having to play a junior college transfer as your number one receiver, leaning on tight ends in the not only the run game, but the pass game too. And again, you lose your best offensive lineman for half of the season as the season is unfolding. And you're still doing pretty good. I was I was really surprised. What what surprises you or gets your attention about offense that I don't know, maybe you overlooked or maybe other people undervalue, underrate. That offensive line, when they're good, uh, they're good. Like that that's obviously hey, <laughs> hey, when they can block, they can they, they do well. That's good. That's that's some analysis I got for you right there. Mm. But uh Purdy struggles, I, I think, have all in my mind, when I think of Purdy and, and Neil Brown even described him as this. I think of him as somebody that can move. I, I think I originally thought of him as more of a dual threat quarterback, somebody that ran a lot of read option and kept it a good bit. And it's almost like my memories deceived me that that's really not the case. I mean, he's he's not a he's not a statue by any means, but he really struggles when he has to move around out of the pocket. He really struggles when there's pressure. Uh, I mean, I, I broke down his stats the other day that it, it, his his rating from pro football focus when there is pressure is terrible. Like it is cut in half. Uh, He's averaging five yards per throw. His rating is around a 40. This is out of a hundred. And, but when there's not pressure, it's up near 90. And I, it's, I'm having a hard time grasping that because in my mind, it's like, I just remember him as this mobile quarterback that can scramble, that does well on the run, really does well when the play breaks down. And that's, apparently at least as far as this year goes just not true it's just i remember something completely wrong he's evolved yeah what they had initially was the guy who could come in and give him a jolt offensive do some do some rpo zone read stuff and he was he was good at that in 2018 got a little bit better more well-rounded last year and you're right he's not that person this year he's he's become much more of a i don't want to say prototypical passer but more passer than than runner, and probably more passer than passer slash runner. You think that's right? Yeah, I think okay. so. You mentioned pressure. This is every game we talk about West Virginia. When they're good, they're going to get pressure. And when they're not, they're going to be passive. Um, you put a lot of pressure on a team when it gets into the red zone. Just because you want to speed things up. A lot of the red zone stuff is timing. You're working with limited space, especially vertically, sometimes horizontally, if you you know roll the pocket to the right on fourth and one. But things speed up and you could speed teams up. He has one red zone turnover and we're talking two and a half years now. That's pretty great. And it was mm-hmm. an interception this year. Otherwise 32 touchdowns and no other interceptions. However, he's 59 for one of six passing in the red zone. So about 50%, a little bit, a yeah. little bit better than that. And again, things happen fast and I'm wondering, is that connected to pressure? Again, you're going to try to, you're going to try to smoke some people in the red zone because 
you want to have them doing things quicker than they want to. You don't want them reacting. You want them thinking. If they don't have time to think, they're going to throw out of bounds, get sacked, or make a mistake. He doesn't make the mistakes. Perhaps he's throwing a lot of balls into the band. I don't know, but 59 out of 106 didn't do anything for me. However, um, he runs a lot in the red zone, too. 55 rushes, 152 yards, 15 touchdowns in his career in the red zone. So, again, 47 touchdowns, one turnover in the red zone. But, again, it's not it's not clockwork for him down there. It does seem like that you can you can get him off schedule. You can get that offense off schedule. And, uh, again, they, they score well enough that if you can get them to take three instead of seven, boy, if you can steal a possession in the red zone – I don't know, stop them on fourth and one, pop a ball out, tip one in the end zone and on a blitz and get interception. You're you're not only stealing points and possessions there, you're stealing a chunk of the game away from them. That It's going to be hard to get back against West Virginia's defense. I think we can say that. Sure. And another key here, and this is going to sound kind of, when you look at it, it sounds counterintuitive to everything we kind of just said or I, about the pressure and getting pressure because – Purdy's numbers are drastically better when he gets rid of the ball quickly, which you oh, think, yeah. well, you get rid of the ball quickly when he's under pressure. It's like, no, 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 no. You get rid of the ball quickly when there is no disruption on the defensive side of the ball, when the the play runs exactly how it's supposed to, when there's no disruption on the on the receivers, they can run their routes quickly and you just hit them quick. And he, he, he has a 79% completion percentage with eight touchdowns, two interceptions when he throws it with less than two and a half seconds. And when he has more time than that, it's not really that he has more time than that. It's more that he's holding the ball longer than that. His completion percentage drops to 47.5% with six TDs and four picks. So it's it's key that West Virginia's defense doesn't get in this comfortable mode of hanging back and letting his receivers run their routes because then Purdy will find them quick. They got to get up and they got to get on. They got to disrupt routes. They got to jam guys at the line and make Purdy wait and go through his progressions because that's when he starts to struggle, when he has to go to his second and third and fourth option or try to make a play on his own. And that's when things kind of break down for him. He's one of those quarterbacks. We've talked about, a, I don't know, half a dozen quarterbacks, it seems like now, who are really good in the middle of the field. His numbers, when you go from 0 to 10, 10 to 20, and 20 plus in the middle of the field, 67 for 81, 24 for 40, and 1 for 13. Deep middle is the pot of gold because you can run deep. You can run post left to right, post right to left. There's a lot of things you can do there. 1 for 13. Um, however, behind the line of scrimmage, he cleans up 36 out of 37. And, <laughs> and they, they feed the running backs and receivers screens and all sorts of weird stuff there too, but Strong enough arm to get it outside, which is not something that every quarterback can do, going hash the sideline, whether you're near hash or far sideline, whatever. He can do that. He's got a he's got a good enough arm. But the middle stuff is not great. You're talking ninety two out of one thirty four. That's I'm in my head here. You're below seven to ten, probably sixty eight percent, but teams really do hit those numbers pretty well too. But and again with those tight ends in the middle, that's a lot of targets. hundred and thirty four passes in the middle. It's gonna be where he wants to go, but you can cover things up and you can you can do some work there too. But a lot of stuff behind the line of scrimmage, too. Um, receivers, anything catch your attention here? I'm assuming we'll get to the tight ends, but it looks like Hutchison is kind of an impactful player. Junior college transfer, which is not something they do a lot of, or maybe something junior college transfers don't do a lot of. Uh, 42 receptions, 30 of them are behind the line or 0 to 10 yards. So he is not a deep threat. So you got to cover him early in the routes. And then, again, the other guys, they, they really don't even have, like, a number two. They've kind of 
they've kind of pieced things together because again they miss Milton um, skates has been there and, and hasn't played a whole lot. Um, they have big guys. Gosh, I'm look at their tight ends of six 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 seven, but skates is six three, Hutchison six two, and who is the other one that's big here too? Sean Shaw Jr. six foot six two, big targets for uh, for Purdy. Yeah, I think you look at that, and maybe this is part of the problem with Purdy. Not part of the problem, but why his stats are declining from two years ago to last year to this year. You know, early in his career, he's throwing to Alan Lazard, Hakeem Butler, those type of guys, guys that are legitimate NFL-type receivers that just catch everything, especially deep balls. They were great. Uh, Lazard and Butler were great on deep balls. I mean, particularly Butler, who was, what, like a 6'5 and ran a 4'5", 40-yard dash and caught everything. And now I just don't think he has that receiver. I think that's probably their biggest weakness on the offensive side of the ball is – they just don't have a receiver that he can consistently rely on, especially deep. And that's why that's why you're seeing those terrible numbers deep middle like you're talking about. Uh, and that's why you're seeing kind of the, them going a lot more with the two two tight end sets and, and shifting them all around and, and looking to get them the ball. Counterpoint, Chris. Uh-oh. It's kind of hard to get two or three receivers on the field when you're playing 12 and 13 personnel. <laughs> I mean, they'll play with three tight ends. They'll put Allen, Soner, and Kolar out there. They'll definitely have Kolar on one of the other two for, I would say, the vast majority of the snaps. You're just not going to see them go empty set four wide, three wide a lot, too. So, But also, it may be also what you're saying, too. Perhaps they don't have a guy who's a burner. Perhaps they don't have the, the personnel to put two or three out there. Not having Milton's a big deal. And Shaw and, and Skates are, are talented players. They're sophomores. And I think they might have realized, you know what, we have a chance to be really good here if we find our thing. And our thing is we got great tight ends, collectively as good as anybody in the country. Eh, let's run a bunch of 12 personnel. Let's throw three tight ends out there. It's only going to put Hutchinson out there, and he's only going to run short routes, but he's good at that. Let's do that. I, I think that's probably what they've done. And moreover, I, I think Neil Brown really admires like what they're doing there. They've had a couple of years to get their their footprint and, and then take some steps from that footprint. And they've done it, and it's a little bit different. Can Iowa State go out and recruit people and run the offenses that Oklahoma, Oklahoma State have? No. Um, would you go out and do what Iowa State's doing? Probably not, but Iowa State can do that, and it's been fairly effective. I think that there's some there's some achievement there. So it's a chicken chicken or the egg kind yep. of thing here. Yep. Is, is, are they going 12 and 13 personnel because the tight ends are great or because they don't have the right receivers to actually go three and four wide? That's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> um, you want to talk tight ends? You know I do. <laughs> Good. Hey, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna cede the floor to you. Um, but before we do, after this podcast, after you listen to this podcast, uh, fans, listeners, make sure you go check out the Insider Q and A with uh, Michael Swain from our mm-hmm. Iowa State site. Because in that Q and A, not only does he give answers to some of these questions, but uh, there's a link to a thing that he did. Uh, it was a 10 minute long video of him just breaking down the tight ends in their offense. Yes. Um, it was, God, I was like, oh, no, they got a mic over there, too. They got a mic over there at Iowa State site. So go check it out. Go check it out. Now, Mike, give us the prelude. Go for no, it. They're, they're good. They're, they're, they're as advertised. They're not, like, exceptional players. I'm not sure. I think probably probably all three can get in an NFL camp. I mean, one's going to get drafted for sure, and then Allen and Stoner are really athletic guys who are six seven and block a move. So, listen, they're going to 
they're going to add an offensive tackle to every play because one of them is going to be on the edge. And then frequently another guy's going to be in the backfield. Sometimes they'll go two tight ends on one side. Sometimes they'll attach both. They're going to add, they're going to add two gaps to the running game at all times. Cause if one, if you have a tight end on the left and another is an H back, he's going to leave for the run. It's probably going to the left and you're going to have two more hats out there. So they're good at that. And, and their numbers, when you look at their run percentage of where they go left end or, you know, left guard, those left side runs are effective. Those right side runs are effective because they do that. But they they mix you up so much with their tight ends. And I think Jordan Leslie said this week that you know what plays they're going to run because they don't run too many, but they're doing it in formations that you've never even seen before. <laughs> That's kind of freaky this late into the season. And you're talking about typically team study, you know, the past four or five games of a team. If you're seeing a pattern over four or five games of seeing new formation you've never even seen, maybe they're running out of them this late in the season. That's kind of what you cross your fingers about, but that's what they're doing because you can put one, two, three out there. And again, when you're putting – this sounds weird. You're putting three tight ends on the field. You can make Kolar your, your receiver. That's not hard. Or maybe your second receiver. You can do things like that. You can play with two tight ends and two receivers and just make Kolar one of them. So that's fine. They can do – they just do a lot of stuff. They're good blockers. You're six, 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 seven. They're big guys. They're hard to move. They're old. But they're athletic too, and, and they run these seam routes, which I wrote about – and it's not like a, it's not something you can really defend or put on man to man because they're reading you. So if you are Tyke Smith, if you're Jared Bartlett, if you're Sean Mahone, if you're Alonzo Adai, they're they're like trust fall throws. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. You can kind of just expect that it's going to be in a spot. So Purdy's going to say, "All right, they're playing a zone or they're playing man here, but I'm going to have this window here. I'm going to put this ball up the seam into the spot, and my six seven guy is going to go get it." They do a lot of that. It, it seems like timing stuff, but they're just putting it in the vicinity that they think a six foot seven athlete can go up and get it. And your five eleven corner, your five eleven safety is not going to be able to climb the ladder. And it works out pretty well. They're effective, you know, red zone guys. Sure. But third down guys or second and short guys, they, they find their spots for them too. The one thing that's, that's pretty interesting though, is Kolar is, uh, let's see here. Three for eight on deep throws. Three for eight. It's not a big number. How many tight ends aside from like Kyle Pitts are going deep? Not many, right? And yeah. they're targeting him down there. And when you talk about 20-plus, just three for eight, okay. But 10 to 20, which is kind of still extending it for a tight end a little bit, 14 for 21, three touchdowns. So when they push the ball to Kolar, 17 for 29, four touchdowns, all four of his touchdowns, and more than half of his receptions. So he's a weapon. He's not a tight end. He's, he's a really athletic kid. They can flex out and do stuff. You've seen it for a couple of years and the other guys are perfectly complimentary to what they do. All I do when I stare at that passing direction chart for Purdy is I see that middle 10 to 20 yards. I mean, the completion percentage isn't outstanding. 24 of 40 is what is that? 12 of 20, three of 60%. That's okay. That's whatever. But 40 attempts, for 448 yards and five touchdowns, that's that's remarkable. And all I see when I look at that is there's that tight end seam. That's what that is. I feel like that that's a lot of what those throws are, and and that's going to be a tough one. Uh, I I can't believe I'm gonna. I don't even want to repeat it, Mike. But as you said, they gotta they gotta sew that up. Yeah, sew you that like up. That? I, I saw I saw it and was like, why is that on the front page? Slide that off. Somebody slot that to the second page. You're going to have to have a second defender come over and help a lot. You know, it, can a guy – you're not going to be able to, to dislodge the ball coming down with those guys. They're just too strong, and they're going to keep it high. Um, but you're going to have to have a second defender come over and help a lot. So 
we'll see how many PBUs and how many, you know, maybe deflections, whatever they can get in that spot. But it's going to be important, too, because, again, that's where they're going to go. They're going to throw a lot of stuff there because they don't have the tight end or the receivers, but more importantly, they have the tight ends, too. Uh, quickly, Hall, best back they've seen this year, and that includes, you know, Chuba Hubbard, who I know you're not very high on. Um, <laughs> probably not a long list after that, though, I guess. We saw that Deuce Vaughn probably wasn't as advertised. Trying to think if there's anybody else. The guys at Baylor were collectively good, didn't have a great day. By by far, the best running back I've seen this year. Oh yeah, I I would say so. I mean, he leads the Big Twelve Conference in basically every single category. I think it's it's one two at the top of every rushing category in the league right now between Country. Brees Hall, yeah, Brees Hall and and uh, Letty Brown. So it's um it, it's. It's going to be the toughest task. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think Oklahoma State had kind of had their had their spots, you know, but we've talked about that before where it just seemed like that Oklahoma State game was two-yard run, two-yard run, 50-yard run, which made it seem, which is not good, of course, but it made it seem worse than maybe it was. And, and, and Brees Hall is going to be somebody that's just going to kind of chunky for five, six, seven yards every time. Yep. Really even left, right. I mean, I, I don't I want to bore you with this, but when you look at, the touchdowns, the first downs, the long runs, it's pretty much split even left and right. And on that, but inside, outside, too. Outside the left end, outside the right end, outside the right guard, outside the left guard, just about even. So he's just well-rounded. He runs more to the left, slightly better to the right, but not a huge disparity there, too. He's, he's just good. Pro football focus is a wild stat. I always like to look at the uh, breakaway percentage. Mm-hmm. So they, they chart runs of 15 yards or more. He has 15 of those. On those 15 runs of 15 yards or more, he has more than half of his 1,200-plus yards rushing. Wow. So don't fall asleep because you're right. Two yards, two yards, 50 yards. That 50 yards still counts, too. They don't trick in the running game either. Um, Hall and virtually nobody else. <laughs> and they have one jet sweep all season. No reverses, no end arounds, no jet sweeps, just one jet sweep to Kenny and Wong Du, and that was it. They are pretty traditional when it comes to the running game, but they're good at it, too. Defensively. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of fun to watch these guys play. If uh, if you like defense, or if you're not rooting for the offense. <laughs> Which is not a good formula if you're listening to this podcast, I guess, right? Correct. Two really good defenses that go about it in different ways. I think, but Iowa State just kind of revolutionized things. It's not as as rare as it was before, but they're very good, and West Virginia does too. Differences are West Virginia, they move their defensive line a bunch before the snap, or for, from one snap to the next, I should say. They don't really trick you with any like pre-snap formations. They trick you after the snap, or they, they put their, their wrinkles and their flexibility and their variation after the snap. Iowa State lines up different all the time in the back, but their defensive line is is home all the time. They're going to play that that four eye technique where they're inside the tackle's shoulder, and they just take away those gaps and force you to go outside. And they're going to have somebody there. But their secondary is good. It causes trouble. Um, I, I could talk and talk and watch and watch this. It's, it's it's a lot of fun if you like defense, and they do it better than anybody else. They don't do it by themselves anymore, but they're still the best at it, at least in the conference. Well, I won't take the doom and gloom approach, Mike. I'm going to take a little bit of a positive look at this because there is a little bit of a, a weakness yes. we've seen when when they start to give up plays, when they start to give up points, when they're when they're not on top of their game. The place 
the area of the field where they get exploited, and I, I feel like we're repeating ourselves a lot <laughs> when we do this week to week, is the middle of the field. Um, you know, you look back at a couple of the games where they've they, they've been exploited through the air, and that is uh, Oklahoma and the TCU game specifically. I, I'm focusing on here. Those were their two lowest grades for for pass coverage on the season, and both Spencer Rattler and Max. Du- All right, here we go. Is it Duggan or Dugan? Duggan? I think it's Duggan. Okay, Max Duggan. That's what I was going to say. I was making sure. Max Duggan, Spencer Rattler and Max Duggan, a combined 31 of 37 in the middle of the field. Hmm. Just eating them up. And, and that's, that's not all short passes. This is deep stuff, too. I'm talking all the way 20-plus. Uh, Duggan, 3 of 3 for 99 yards and two touchdowns, throwing it over the middle of the field, 20-plus yards. Uh Spencer Rattler, two of four for 82, six of eight for 89 in the middle there, you know, 10 to 20 yards and Duggan two of two for 42. So it's, you can get them, you know, we, we joked about the seam that the tight ends for Iowa state, like they hit West Virginia on and West Virginia fans have, have, have seen their defenses get eaten up up the middle on that. But it seems like if West Virginia doesn't necessarily have to be with a tight end, West Virginia can hit that middle too and get up the middle and get up the field and, and kind of beat up on this defense. You know who's really good? Who's that? Ish Young. Yeah. Yeah, pretty good. Almost he, was going to be a Mountaineer. And imagine him in that secondary. Yeah, that'd be crazy. Right, where would he play? I mean, because it's already kind of a loaded safety spot. Is he ahead of, you know, because where does he really, like, I think he plays, I don't know, does he play full free safety, strong safety, kind of mixes back and forth? Is he taking over Alonzo Adai's spot, who's been great? He's their star, know. so he's kind of like their spear. Yeah. So, so is he ahead of Tyke? Or is Tyke Smith the best free safety in the Big 12? Right. It's a fun thing to think about. That'd be good, too. Um, Yeah, so... They, I don't want to. There's a thing here about how they have back-to-back games under 200 yards against Iowa State. Last year, it almost doesn't count to me because remember they said they had a great week of practice and they built stuff in just for Kendall to succeed. Right? They gave him like 90% of the reps. Well, guess what happens? He gets hurt. Jack Allison comes in, and next thing you know, he's in West Lib. Right? Didn't yeah. work out very well. So that's I don't know. Who knows? We haven't seen them attack this offense yet. I, I would almost throw that out. We did see two years ago a really, really good West Virginia offense completely shut down. And, and my recollection is playing into that a couple of reasons. One, the silent clap snap, right? Where you clap, look around, clap again. Iowa State was hammering the second clap on that snap. And then that fifth guy was coming into the box and blitzing. That fourth guy was coming in the box and blitzing and timing it perfectly again and again and again. And they went two by two on the receivers frequently throughout that game, which plays right into what they do because they can play balanced at that point. And you're going to have a man over every receiver plus one safety over the two outside receivers. So you're putting a cone over those guys and you're going to have that one person in the middle who can do whatever he wants. He can blitz. He can crash to play the run. He can go outside to help on a quick play. He can cover deep. You're, you're playing into their, their, their strengths there. So tips on this, how do you beat it? Good luck. No one's really done it. Their their efficiency numbers, their points per game, yards per play, all that stuff is excellent. There's not a book out there. You can't get greedy because you're not going to beat them over the top, which may be good for West Virginia. 
And you're right. Inside stuff's going to have to be good. They're going to have to block really well in the perimeter in the passing game. I don't think you can expect to have a huge running game. But you got to vary your formation. You're going to have to start in formation A, shift into formation B, and then motion into formation C, stuff like that. You're going to have to make them move their pieces around and get them out of balance, out of alignment. Um, Whatever happens after the snap, that's obviously the most important part. You can leverage your success by what you do before it. I would be very surprised if they play two-by-two stuff. If they play balance formations, I think you'll see three on one side. I think you'll see tight end H-back on one side. It would make sense to me to see some two tight end stuff in this game just because they're going to clog up those A-gaps, and they're going to spill the runs outside. And if you can not even worry about weakening them, softening them, getting two or three yards in the middle to hope you hit a six- or eight- or 12-yard run, Try to go outside, outside zone, um, you know, plant and cut and go outside. If you got one extra blocker out there, if you can get a tight end and a slot receiver blocking out there, you got a chance to help yourself there too. So, yeah, whatever happens after the snap is good, especially in the run game. But, man, be creative with your pre-snap stuff. And I'll say this too. By the way, did you see who's leading the Big 12 in yards per reception? I did not. Did you guess? I'm giving you a clue here, obviously. Uh, I was going to say, you're leading me towards... West Virginia somehow. Uh, Winston Wright? TJ Simmons. TJ Simmons. Ah, okay. I was thinking Wright mostly because he had a couple of those big ones that might have inflated that yards per catch. But, eh, yeah, I could see it. 20.6 yards per catch. Playing better lately. And I seem to remember he's an aggressive blocker. I don't know Something what happened. Like that. I just had that in my head for some reason. Something like that. Yeah. So, again, be... Be, be smart about formations and things like that. You got a chance to to do some stuff that you can do because that's that's what West Virginia does. They as recently as against TCU, TCU sees your play, your formation, looks at the sideline, checks, and gets into something that's supposed to stop you. If you're doing that muddle huddle where you're breaking the huddle late and then you're shifting and you're snapping it quickly after the shift, you're not giving TCU a chance to adjust. Right? You're taking away their advantage when they check audible whatever. You got to find a way to do something similar to that against Iowa State too, because you know they're they're gonna they're gonna solve you out of their base, and they're gonna do something out of their base. They don't want to shift and, and adjust to whatever, but if you can find ways for your formation to take away their advantages, you, you got a chance there. And again, you got to block. You got to be really good on the perimeter against them. Any any tips for your uh, your side of this? I'm curious about the run game. Uh, you know, a lot of what we hear about Iowa State, you know. They have a strong front seven. I don't think there's any denying that. But when things go wrong there, they seem to really go wrong as far as stopping the run. Um, that was the other kind of big, you know, when you look at the split stats between what happens in wins and what happens in losses. And I mentioned their passing offense. There's a 113-yard difference between wins and losses. It's pretty drastic with their rush defense as well. When in their wins, they're holding teams to 90 yards per game. And in their losses, the opposing teams are averaging 172 yards on the ground. Mm. Um, That's a big number. I mean, granted, it's only two games, but that's a big number. And I think, you know, West Virginia is going to have to find a way because obviously West Virginia is at their best when Letty Brown is is chugging along. But you're not going to be able to just kind of run it right up the middle, do, you know, do basic stuff. I don't think that's going to work against a, a defensive front that is as good as Iowa State. So you're going to have to get creative to find ways to get that running game going yeah. because when you do, you win. It's hard to do because you're not, you're not pulling guards. 
no. against them because they're going to be in your gap right away and they're probably going to have to chase it down. Are you doing misdirection stuff? Maybe you can because you might be able to to squeeze them in the middle and then counter outside. I don't know. That'd be interesting too, but we haven't seen them do a lot of that. Have plenty of time to do it, you think, but really only like two extra days to get into their game plan, which maybe they could have done. I'm curious because, again, I, I don't think that we can use last year's game as an indication of, of what they do to Iowa State. I think now that Brown is like, hey, this is my first crack at John Heacock. This is my first crack at that that 3-3-3 three, three, three defense that they play. Three down linemen, three linebackers, three safeties you know, inside the two corners. This is my first crack at something that when I came into the Big 12, I looked at and said, oh, this is different. And again, I think he admires that too. Here's a team that's different and just isn't like everybody else. And, and his defense is somewhat similar to that. In that, it's not like everybody else. Um, I, I will see your rushing stats and raise you one. Go. You're, you're given their numbers for losses. They only lost twice. Um, right. One loss, 118 yards, 35 attempts. That's 3.37. That's pretty good. The other loss, Oklahoma State, 226 yards, 51 rushes. And again, good running backs there. Um, Hubbard had, I think, a big game that day. I'm trying to see if I can pull it up quickly. But again, 220 is pretty impressive. He had 139, a touchdown, 25 carries, but not by himself that day. LD Brown had a good game, too, and ended up with I'm trying to think. Actually, he wasn't the guy. It was Jackson, wasn't it? My bad. So if you can find two guys to get yourself over 40 carries, you got a chance to be effective there. So that's that's something they're going to have to look into and see if it works. Actually, Jackson didn't even play that game. How the heck did they get 200 yards rushing? <laughs> Sanders? Uh, you think, oh, I was that you meant Barry Sanders came back. Uh, maybe because it wasn't Brown and it wasn't Jackson. Those guys are the, the backup running backs who have been playing better than Hubbard lately, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, 71 yards to the quarterback that day. Not going to see that tomorrow. So if you can find two guys to get you like 40 carries, that means you're playing your game. It's probably low scoring. You're going in the third and fourth quarter with a competitive game. Or you're in the front and you're controlling it. And you got to believe that West Virginia is capable of doing that. So use Letty Brown and then running back B, you know, to to get you some other drive extenders, some clock killers, some first downs, maybe even some productivity. Um, kind of feels like that 40 carry threshold is an important one to watch. I don't know why, but it just feels like I, I don't think you're worried about either team getting into a shootout with the other one in this game. So this is going to be kind of a, a kind of an old school throwbackish, and who can be more creative toward controlling possession, controlling the clock and, and just taking advantage of a defense that either way does not get taken advantage of very often. Um, before we wrap up, Mike, I got to ask you, cause I don't think we've talked since the Gonzaga game. Mm-hmm. You have any, you want to, you have any thoughts that you want to throw out there for, you know, like 30 seconds, one minute, like, what, what you yeah. think, what you saw there? Um, extension of, of, I think even the bad stuff and certainly the good stuff from the first three games, they, they're exactly, they're exactly who and what you thought they'd be. They're not going to score um, with a lot of great shooting, but they're going to get points. Like they've 82 points against Gonzaga is pretty good. And they were, I don't know, high seventies in all three tournament games. I, I know 70 points isn't impressive, especially today, like points per game in football points per game. In basketball is the most important thing, I think, but they struggle so much to shoot that they're manufactured points. They're good at that. They'll be fine. I don't think this is like a 10 or 11 person team though. Not right now, at least. And I wonder how they're going to get there when that game went South, Wednesday night is when they had this is this is the truth. McCabe, Osaboyan, Cottrell, 
and Bridges in the lineup. How are you scoring there against the number one team in the country? It scores better than anybody. And how are you guarding? How are you running offense? How are you guarding offense? That wasn't very good. And it's probably a lot to expect Kedrian Johnson and Cottrell and Cottrell or whomever you call him now. It's a lot to expect those guys to play well. Bridges was in there at one point, too. So they, they tried everything that first half. It didn't work. I just don't think that you're, you're messing around right now with the bench guys. Good thing is you're playing Georgetown, who's terrible. Terrible. Lost to Navy. And then Robert Morris, it'll be their first game. So you have a chance to really get those guys run here. I, I think that you're going to see when they get lined up against Richmond, probably a good indication of who they're going to be moving forward because it has to happen fast. So bench concerns me a little bit. I don't think you're going to have off nights like that every night. Um, Sherman was ineffective in the first half because of foul trouble. He was great in the second half. Is Osa Boyan going to be a perfect shooter every night? No, but he's going to be pretty consistent in above average contributions across the board. I think the 6'10 freshman from Las Vegas, Isaiah Blank, <laughs> is probably going to be a good player sooner than later and maybe sped it up a little bit. I don't know where you're going beyond that. I'm just curious about McCabe, Kedrian Johnson, Jalen Bridges right now. One or two of those guys has to hit. Big two games for them. I am in agreement on most everything you said there. I think this is a seven-man team with maybe you kind of spot, you know, a guy in there for a few minutes like Cottrell and, uh, and, and whatever you want to do here. But I, I think it's a seven man team. I don't, I don't see the depth. I, I see guys that aren't ready yet. You know, Jalen Bridges, I, I'm not sure he's ready. Uh, you know, we kept hearing about how he, he can shoot it. He can shoot it. He can shoot it. He's had a couple open looks, a uh, small sample size, but uh, you, you got to do, got to do more than that as well. And uh, Cottrell, he did. He, I thought he was okay. I thought yeah. you saw sparks of it in that Gonzaga game. Uh, like uh, he, he got the ball at the high post and did a bounce pass in the post, and I about wet myself because I don't think I've seen that from a West Virginia player in several years. Uh, so that was great. But he looks kind of smooth, and and I, I think Huggins put it best, saying that he's a skill guy. He has the skills, but he's got to get bigger. He's got to get stronger. He's got to get more aggressive to really play, especially against a team like Gonzaga. But I thought he did fine in that game. And but this is this is a seven man team that desperately needs a point guard, and I don't know if it's going to happen. And and I think you're going to get exploited in games like that with Gonzaga. And um, but the posit the the other thing is one Gonzaga's <laughs> Gonzaga is really freaking good. Great. Uh, don't forget. Let's remember number one team in the country, and they run the floor. Like holy cow! I, I think the the fast break points were twenty four to six in favor of Gonzaga. But they just their bigs run the floor, and if you have a big that can run the floor, that has the stamina that can run there, because there there's not many six eight six ten guys that weigh two hundred and forty pounds, two hundred fifty pounds that have the stamina to run up and down the court. Because uh, you know, do do the physics in your head. Look at the look at the length of the court. The big men run more than the guards because the guards go you know perimeter to perimeter. Big men are going from back. They're fighting for rebounds, they're fighting to post up, they get exhausted. And if you have a guy that can do all that and still run, it, that that's 10, 12, 15 free points a game yeah. if you can do that. And Gonzaga really exploited West Virginia on that. And I think that's what frustrated Culver and Huggins and, and a lot of guys on that team so much because they knew that was coming and still couldn't do it. But with the foul trouble and the lack of depth, did you have the guys and the horses and the stamina to kind of get back like that? And I just 
just don't think they did. They're they're very good. Is very good. They're up by nine, and yeah. we're we're playing their game. And then their best players are on the floor. It got away from a little bit when the bench came in, and then the good players came back in and reestablished it. They had the ball up nine on, I believe, a seven-two run. Matthews throws like a thirty-five pass into the paint to a running Shibway that I think hit the rim. Yeah, it goes the other way for a three. Shibway's back, gets a quick pass, hurries, misses. They get a bucket the other way, and all of a sudden it's a four-point game. You're like, what happened? And just one mistake. And Huggins said we did dumb things. They did. And the margin is so small that those little things are really magnified against them. I don't, I don't feel bad about their their potential. I think they have uh, a ways to go. But for the number eleven team in the country to have a ways to go and be number eleven and hanging with number one, that's a really good sign. Um, yeah. The two guys that you really want to see, like, like who or what, are Emmett Matthews and Jordan McCabe right now. Because listen, they're they're on the firing line here, right? Because yeah. they're better with three guards right now. And if you're putting a third guard on the floor. Who are you taking out? Matthews. And it looks to me like they're putting Kedrian Johnson in the game because they want to see if he can play. And I don't think they want him to close the gap on McCabe or pass McCabe. But if someone's minutes are going away in the backcourt, it's going to be the fourth guard on a team that has five guards. So those those two guys right now, they could bring this team up another level. They're both good players. Um, McCabe's potential is probably less than what we saw his freshman year when he played quickly kind of more uninhibited and it was in a groove shooting and scoring teams funnel him inside now when they're not jumping him. I don't, I said this during the game, but he's, he's turning to Brandon Napper. And what I mean by that is when Napper got on the floor, teams hounded him, sent a second guy at him, jumped him when he got the ball and, and he kind of had the red light go off and he would get rid of the ball or he dribble faster. He'd do something expedited. McCabe is getting that treatment as well. I think he's more capable of handling that and being smarter and more calm and more cool. The trouble is, he's going to have to score. He's missed every shot he's taken this series, only hit free throws, and he's had good looks, and teams just aren't worried about him getting in the paint. And when he does, something bad has happened here, too. And Matthews, listen, that dude's just too talented. Like, he's he's got a lot of potential. I thought he was good in that game. He ends up, I think, one for six or one for five, but he was making contributions until that pass, and then Huggins kind of sat him down. And we, t- we hear about this with Brown, and we hear about this with Huggins, too, when do you start making guys pay with their playing time? They have. They have. You've seen it in football. Guys who made mistakes and drop passes aren't playing anymore. Um, and guys who don't make shots that are there for them or who turn the ball over, I think Huggins is being a little bit more punitive with here. And that's why I think that this isn't going to be like an 11-person team once you get into the thick of things. They can survive with, with seven, eight, nine guys. They can. Will they? We'll see. Yeah, I think um... – yeah, the McCabe thing got it. Got into the paint one time and throwing it behind his neck around for a pass. I think a foul was called, so it ended up being nothing. But then the one that really sent Huggins off uh, gets doubled out on a wing and then tries to throw a one-handed, underhanded softball type pitch pass into a crowded lane. Immediately gets picked off. Like <laughs> just lays it out there. And and before Gonzaga even started going in the transition. Huggins was already off the stool, stomping, screaming, and and calling for someone to come in, and rightfully so. That was just one of the most egregious passes I think I've I've seen for West Virginia, and they've had some bad ones over the years, and that that was might have been one of the worst. Yeah. Um, so the thing with those two guys is that they played Matthews and McCabe played pretty well the final nine ten games of their true freshman year. They were not good last year, and you're getting to a point where you're about you're 
four games in now, but it won't be long until they played nine or 10 games their junior year. You're looking at a year and a half, a season and a half of someone's career that's isolated to one 10 game stretch. And then like 40 games that are, are more like themselves than the other 10. And you're just thinking, what do we believe in here? The 10 or the 40 since then that have not been as redeeming. I don't think that's going to get ignored, especially when again, McNeil and Sherman and McBride are better players on the court right now than two guys, they're guards. And then are you, are you sitting them out because you got to play guys who have been around for longer and it meant a lot to your, your stability and your camaraderie? I don't think so. So the potential is there for them, but big two games, they, they've got to do something here because it gets serious once Richmond comes to town. Yeah. If I Richmond think, comes to town. Right. Um, I think my, my big takeaway, silver lining and things they got to work on kind of summarize here. 40 minutes of that game against Gonzaga. I'd say West Virginia outplayed Gonzaga for 30 of it, maybe close to that. But then the other 10 was just such a disaster. Like like that, that's the thing with Gonzaga. This is why Gonzaga is the number one team in the country. Maybe they didn't play the best all 40 minutes, but when they weren't playing the best, they weren't terrible. West Virginia played better for 30 minutes, but the other 10 minutes they played terrible. And like Huggins said, and like, you know, the player said, they quote did dumb things, and 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 it just went from, as you noted, with that one stretch where they were about had the ball and up nine, and thirty seconds later it's down to four, and and that's just how it happens, and that's why, it, you know, that's where they got to fix it. When things go wrong, you got to kind of regroup, and don't let them get way wrong, and, and don't let it go sideways. Just kind of keep it close. They're they're also one or two McNeil shots away from being in front or being mm-hmm. back in that game too. He just had a bad night. I don't know if I had to do getting hit in the head like he did or because he hasn't shot it well, period, this year. And also for most of his time on campus. But great practice player. But when you look at how much better Sherman is this year, you see that maybe some of the stuff isn't completely nonsensical, that, oh, guys are making shots. We hit them all the time in the gym. Sherman's shooting exceptionally well. And he was great in the second half. Um, Should have had at least three more points on his total. He had 12 in the second half. He got robbed on a charge. It doesn't make any sense you know, two days later, but if McNeil does what he's capable of or something close to it, a lot of problems go away. Cause Sean yeah. McNeil thinks Sean McNeil is the best player on the floor, which I kind of like, that's, I not a, that's not a knock against him. Yeah. I, I like the confidence. And if you're going to be a good shooter, you have to have that kind of confidence and he's got it, but the, the ball also has to go through the hoop. That would help because, because Tash Sherman also has that confidence and Tash Sherman's shooting 57%. Mm-hmm. From three right now. I mean, it's eight of 14, but um, that's pretty darn good. Yeah. Uh, speaking of pretty darn good, I was having a conversation with someone who I, I really like to talk to about stuff and told me that he's a big fan of the podcast. And I was, there like, we go. Oh. I was like, well, he's just saying this, right? You know, because we're talking about stuff and they really like the podcast. You know, the, the conversation's wrapping up and I figure this is his farewell. And I was like, oh, thanks. You know, you know, do some work, we do some research, try to get a schedule, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, no, you know, it, it's fun to watch a game after listening to the Friday podcast because I can tell, you know, where they're going to throw the ball, you know, where they should run the ball. Um, are they getting picked on where they said that we could get picked on? Are we picking on them where we said we could pick on them, whatever? I was like, oh, wow, he, the guy really does listen. It's not just smoke. And he goes, and of course, Chris is very adequate. <laughs> <laughs> yes, very so, adequate. God. So he does listen. <laughs> Is uh, man, I got the same compliment from my wife the other day, so I am on a roll this week. Very well, adequate. 
I, so hey, people are listening and they're they're leaning into this gag, so we can keep <laughs> it going there too. Uh, let's lean into the finish here. Under an hour, congratulations, Chris. Uh, oh man, we'll catch you after the game on Saturday evening, three thirty start in Ames, Iowa. We will be on with the podcast afterwards. Rapid reactions. Until then, I am Mike Gazaza. and I'm Chris Anderson. We will talk to you later.